I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Nyingi people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. So it's a really nice community down here. Um, and I and I love that about Tassie. And I love that you're really close to nature and you can also get great produce and great coffee and you know great wine, great gin, great whatever you want. It's uh so it's a it's a great place to live. This is the Over the Glass podcast. I'm Shante Whale. Gilly and Paul Lipscomb make exceptional wine in the Huon Valley of Southern Tasmania. The dream was to establish a vineyard that would sustain the family, their lifestyle, and focus on producing outstanding Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I can confidently say they have done just that. Their brand is Sailor Seek's Horse, and Gilly joins me today to let me into her world. Hi, Gilly. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. Thanks for having me. Nice to be able to have a chat. Absolutely it is, even if it can't be in person, which is a shame. How are you doing down in Tassie today? Good. We're doing pretty well. It's um, it's a bit of a cloudy day today, which seems to be pretty normal for this summer. It's a bit cooler this summer so far, so hoping for a bit of warmer weather coming up soon. Yeah, it feels like we've had some really hot days and then it's just we've kind of missed I suppose that's the the year that we're in but Gilly I know a little bit about your brand and I I thoroughly uh, enjoy your wines but for everybody else can you tell me a little bit about how you came to find yourself in the Huon Valley battling all those elements to make your own wine? Yeah um yeah it's quite a story (laughs) so I guess I guess I'll, I'll start at the beginning um I grew up in Brisbane, so uh, you know, I went to school in Brisbane. I got to the end of schooling and went straight to uni, as most kids uh, who went to my school did. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I, I did a year of architecture. And you know, I, I kind of had nightmares that I would be a really terrible architect and just work on housing estates or something. So I went back to science, which is what I'd studied at school. My family were pretty science um, focused, so I did that for a while. And I, I realised that I, you know, I was really trying to break out from that uh, so I went to art history and I guess the story is I you know I just messed around and, and jumped around and couldn't figure out what I wanted to do and in the meantime I had friends who finished degrees and and uh, good friends who were going over to the UK on a two-year working holiday visa so I kind of decided to put uni on on the back burner and, and go traveling for a little bit and I did that uh, so I went over to London um, got a job over there in a recruitment agency, uh, just in admin and ended up being executive assistant managing director. But Paul was at the same company and, and heading up the marketing department. And that's where we met. And, you know, I think both of us were a little bit lost. We weren't loving what we were doing. Uh, it was fun. You know, it was a dynamic company. There was sort of work hard, play hard. So there's lots of socializing and fun, but we weren't, we weren't, you know, it wasn't something that was particularly satisfying for either of us. And we started to talk about what was important in, in what we felt we wanted to do with our lives. And, you know, wine was something that was an interest to both of us, more so Paul at that point in time. But, um, you know, and to the point where he quit his job, I was kind of living paycheck to paycheck, so I stayed employed, but he quit his job and went down and did a week-long intensive course at um, Plumpton College in winemaking. And he came back from that and he was just, really excited. He said, you know, Gil, this is everything that we've talked about. It's everything that you've said you wanted to do. I think you're really going to love making wine and, and growing grapes. And I kind of looked at him and thought, well, maybe. And he encouraged me to go down to the south of France and work a harvest down there together, down to the Languedoc. So we, we quit, I quit my job and we both just went down to the south of France to work a harvest. And I think that's where I really 
fell in love with the whole process and really understood it. And, you know, it was, it was that everything that I'd been looking for, it was science-based, but there was this creativity, this, you know, problem solving and lateral thinking involved and you're creating something, uh, which was really exciting. And so we did that and, and really over those eight weeks, we started to, well, make a plan for what we really wanted to do. And then we wanted to have our own vineyard, make our own wine. Um, we were pretty keen to do Pinot Noir because we, one, we loved drinking it, it's delicious. Um, but two, we knew we were going to be changing our lives a lot. Uh, and we felt if we were going to do that, we wanted to have a have a real challenge and a real challenge for us we thought would be making pinot you know, is that we knew it was called the heartbreak grape it's notoriously difficult to grow and make so we thought let's aim high and uh, and go for great pinot so we started making a bit of a plan to do that and i guess we the start of that was to to learn at university so we came back to australia went to margaret river and, and enrolled at Curtin, which is uh, where we could do both viticulture and neurology at the same time, uh, which we wanted to both do. And we could work too, because the campus was right in the Margaret River region itself, in the township of Margaret River itself. So worked and studied there and, uh, and, and started to make a plan for where we wanted to settle and look at all the different regions that we could go to. And Tassie was very much at the top of the list uh, pretty early on, particularly if we were going to stay in Australia, and I was quite keen to stay in Australia. Um, and so it, it was a matter of there then looking, okay, if we're going to be in Tassie, where can we be? So we, we looked through all the climatic data and we knew, you know, we wanted to make great Pinot, as you sort of mentioned, and, uh, and to make the style of Pinot that we wanted to make, which was detailed and structured and savoury and complex and interesting. It wasn't, we didn't want to make this kind of fruit bomb of a wine. We knew we had to be somewhere that was super cool climate, you know, right on the edge of viticultural possibility, we felt was where you would make great wine. Uh, and so we needed to be in a super cool climate. And we, and we were looking around the different subregions of Tassie and, and it was really the Huon that drew us, not only for its really cool climate but also it's good rainfall uh, and it has about 700 mils a year we were very keen to dry farm because again we felt that that would give us um, wines that were more reflective of the site and of the year and so I guess that's ultimately how we decided on the Huon um, and then I and and we came across to Tassie and did a, a big um, trip around it was actually a honeymoon at that point and looked around all the different areas and we drove over the over the hill uh, south of Hobart and right down into the Huon and we just fell in love with the place and we sat on the banks of the Huon River and said this is this is where we want to be uh, and you know five or so years later we came back and did it in part of Vineyard. Wow. I I was had so many questions, but you've like answered all of them throughout that. I was going to ask you like, why Margaret River? You know, why did you choose to be there? And But you, you've answered yeah. all of that for me. Um, you, we have to touch on the name Sailor Seeks Horse. It's one of the first things that, that guests ask before anything else. I mean, you've got these incredible labels that are, have got this brooding, um, it really sense. Uh, like a sense of um, tone I find with your wines, but tell us a little bit about the name Sailor Seek Sauce. Yeah. So the name, so I meant, I mentioned about coming down to the Huon um, and I guess, 
you know, we bought, I mean, the Huon is a bit wild. It, it's not, it's, you know, it's undulating and there, and it, it's kind of, you know, you head directly west and it's just uh, national park. It's, it's nothing really other than nature out there. And it, and it feels pretty wild and sort of end of the world kind of, a, of an area. Um, and so I, um, I think that's where the label comes in. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute. But the name, you know, we bought this really rundown vineyard uh, and one day we were pruning it and just decided to take um, a break and go into the local coffee shop in Signet uh, called the Red Velvet Lounge. <clears throat> and, uh, and they used to have a notice board there for community notices. And so people would put up, you know, room for lead, like a bike for sale or whatever. Um, and there was this handwritten sign there that said sailor seeks horse in big bubble writing. And uh, it kind of, caught our attention and we had a closer look and underneath it was a paragraph and said, I've solo circumnavigated the world twice. I've gone from East coast to West coast of the U S and back again, turned up in Signet, just looking for a horse or pony to travel around Tasmania on. Can anybody help me out? My name's Bernie Herberts and um, here's my number. Contact me if you can. And Paul and I kind of looked at each other and had a bit of a laugh. I think this is 2010. And we felt, <laughs> felt like we were taking a step back in time reading this. Um, and we kind of clocked it away. We just loved that little phrase, sailor seeks horse. We went back and we kept working on the vineyard. And, you know, it wasn't till 2015 that we actually had a wine that we could release. And we'd gone through um, all the different options of, of names. You know, our surname's Lipscomb and that doesn't really roll off the tongue. The vineyard's in Craddocks and Sandhill. You know, we couldn't find anything that worked. And this sailor seeks horse kept coming back to us. And I think, you know, we ended up going with that. And I think that was, you know, we felt like it was saying, you know, don't get pigeonholed in life. You know, just because you're sitting in a desk in London, you know, doesn't mean you can't be in a tractor in far south Tassie making great wine. You know, just because you're a sailor doesn't mean you can't jump on a horse and do that for a while. And it was also, you know, he, he also kind of knew exactly what he wanted to do and it sounded a bit crazy and he just needed a bit of help and you know Paul and I bought this vineyard and spent most of our money on buying the actual vineyard and I mentioned it was really run down and so we'd, we sort of needed a bit of help from other people around us too in terms of equipment and gear and, and what have you and local knowledge and uh and you know, we really felt for that you know and the label you mentioned we kind of again we we're trying to do something a little bit different uh so we had the name we went to um, a friend over in the UK who was in advertising and drinks and, and thought he might know some young designer who hadn't really made a name for themselves yet. He might, you know, think outside the box a bit. And so we got names of young designers and, and asked them to put things together. And we were really specific about, you know, we didn't want it to be gimmicky. We didn't want a horseshoe and, a you know, a horse or anything like that. And uh, But that's kind of just what came back. <laughs> Um, and so it's sort of nothing really happened there. We couldn't find anything. And we went to an artist in Brisbane who we really loved the work of. And I think as soon as we said wine label, it really messed her up and she couldn't put anything together. And it was a friend of my brother's who that was. He came down, my brother came down when our daughter was born in 2014 and um, and uh, just to meet her. And, and I showed him all of the labels that had been put together for us. And, uh, and he just clocked them away, I think. He's a psychiatrist. He's not an artist at all. Um, but he, he sent through an image to me that night, uh, which is what our label is now. And, uh, and it's really the background image is the Hearts Mountains and then a, and a shipwreck kind of crashing into those mountains, which 
um, you know, it just felt right. And I think I think it kind of needed to be somebody who had heard our whole story and who understood what we were about and what we were doing, who could translate that into an image. And we we're pretty grateful that we have someone in the family who could do that for us. So... Yeah, I mean, and, and like you said, his being a psychiatrist is really interesting because, like I said, for me it really sets a tone and a mood and a feeling, um, that label. And, you know, these days labels are incredibly important. I think, you know, often people think, well, it's got to jump out on the label and there's so many of them, but it also translates from the story, the people. Um, there's a million minds out there, so it's really important that there's consideration to all of the components that go into it. So I think it, it yeah, it's perfect for um, perfect for your brand and and for what you guys represent. But I actually didn't really realize that Bernie Herbert, the the sailor that was seeking a horse, I didn't realize that that was in 2010. I thought you must have seen a very old post from a long time ago because that's exactly what you said that it, it was someone that was you know when Tassie was first developed that was trying to figure out how he was going to do things and the only option was a horse like so that's amazing yeah I mean, I mean yeah it does feel kind of otherworldly doesn't it <laughs> but it's and you know the other side of that story is that we contacted Bernie um when we decided we wanted to use that phrase we hoped to use that phrase just to ask for permission and see if he was okay with that um, and he was, he was really excited that we'd seen the sign. He remembered the sign and, and we asked him what he actually ended up doing and he never got a horse uh, and he, nobody had a horse to, to <laughs> lend him, but uh, he did go to the local tip shop and, uh, and bought a bike for, you know, $10 and he cycled around Tasmania. And I think he had like $20 in his pocket for the whole time. He made possum traps and lived off possum stew and um, was kind of lived through the kindness of strangers to people who just offer, uh, offer him, you know, a room for a little while or a meal here and there. And so he kind of traveled around that way. It was pretty fascinating. So he's quite a character. And he's actually got his own, um, he's over in uh, North Carolina now. When we contacted him, he was in Newfoundland at the time with his gypsy caravan, but he's now in North Carolina. Uh, and uh, we finally got some wine across to him too. So he's now had the, the wine, which is great. He sent a photo back to us of him with his mules and his wife drinking the wine. <laughs> so it's kind of fun. Oh, it's so great that you did reach out to him and tell him the, the part that he played in your story. I think that's wonderful. I suppose that the fact that he got a bike goes to show that maybe the dream that you imagine maybe doesn't look uh, exactly like you think it's going to. I, you once said to me quite a while ago that the, the romance of owning a vineyard and winemaking was very quickly stamped out. Can you tell me some of the highs and some of the lows of your experiences doing what you do in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, oh, there's, I mean, there's, there's been a heap of them, to be honest, Chante. I, I guess if we, so I, I mentioned we, when we bought the vineyard, you know, we, we'd been searching for uh, somewhere down in the Huon for about well, for a few years, and we hadn't ever found a site. Um, we decided just to move across from Margaret River. We'd finished studying. We moved across to Tassie to be down in Tassie to try and find somewhere. And as we crossed the Nullarbor, we found. Um, this vineyard came up on, on one of the real estate sites. We, so we pretty much drove straight through Hobart down to, to have a look down in the Huon to have a look at this vineyard site. You know, we drove up to it and it was, it was right in the kind of area of the Huon that we wanted to be, this northeast facing slope, you know, tough soils, good good kind of, you know, there's good clay underneath, a sandy loam kind of topsoil. Um, but 
it also, and all the trellising was there, all the, you know, all of that infrastructure had been put there, a couple of big dams, not that we irrigate, but, you know, young vines need that. And, um, but it also had, you know, hundreds of trees through it and blackberry up above your heads, up every row. And most of the vines were, were dead or getting there, <laughs> getting there. Um, so I think, you know, it was this, even at that point, there's this kind of high of finding the site that you thought was going to make amazing wine and it kind of fit exactly what we wanted. But there was also this kind of love that's got so much work and, it's, um, you know, uh, I remember we bought it and we just set set to work pulling out the trees and pulling out the blackberry. We did that by hand because we didn't want to spray anything too nasty. I sort of just remember getting to the shower every night and just crying out in pain because of all the scratches from the blackberry that we had. Um, and we replanted, it would have been about 75% of the vines. Uh, and so, you know, we did all of this work and we, we pruned back everything. It was winter and we didn't quite own the property settlement. It took a long time, but we had access to the to the vineyard. So we pruned everything down and cut them right down because there's been a bit of trunk damage. It sort of been planted five years before and looked after for about a year and then gates closed. So we came, you know, four years after, after the last person would set foot in there and it was really overgrown. Uh, so we did this and we were working up in Hobart. So on weekends, we'd come down and prune. And one weekend we came down, we finished the pruning. We were like, great, this is good. It was getting to September where bud burst comes. We drove away, went up, worked the week in Hobart, came back down and we saw these little green shoots coming out. Oh, great. You know, these vines are still alive. It was really exciting. And we drove, you know, did our work over the weekend and then went back up to Hobart for the week and worked. And then we came back down the next weekend and there was not a single bit of green on the whole vineyard. And it had just been eaten by all the wallabies and the possums and all the animals through. So you kind of, even at that point, and that kind of carries through, you know, we um, uh, it, it sort of moves through to... Um, I, 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 God, there are so many stories, Shante. Um, <laughs> I think about, you know, I think about even in, in 2019 when it was such a, a good vintage, it was looking like it was a, going to be a, a great year. Um, the fruit looked perfect. It was a nice warm year, which we don't get down here very often, a, a bit easier sort of management in the vineyard. And then in, um, in, in January, we kind of watched this big lightning storm come across and, uh, and what, and the next day we drew, drove over these hills and we could just see these plumes of smoke coming up from the, from the bush further to the west. Uh, and we just sort of watched those grow uh, over that month, over that couple of days. And nobody really got on top of it and, and started fighting those fires. And that, those fires all came together and we ended up being a huge bushfire. And, uh, and so then the vineyard was kind of covered in smoke for a good three weeks and we lost everything that year. Uh, to smoke taint, not we didn't lose any any vineyard area. It was really just smoke. Um, so I think you know those sorts of things. It's it's the it's part of it's part of it, and that's part of it anywhere that you grow grapes and make wine or any agriculture. I think, um, but I really feel that maybe the Huon, it's pretty, it's it's not an easy place to uh, to grow grapes down here. It's a kind of high risk, but I think for us high reward. And that's what we were always about was making the best possible wine we could. So, you've, yeah. You've brought up a couple of things. One is that, that you talked about choosing to use the heart, heartbreak grape that you chose in a, a beautiful vineyard that also was um, 
you know, completely dilapidated and, and covered in your own blood, sweat and tears. And then also that you've, you've chosen an area that is um, ideal, but also really risky. So it really seems to me that you have a good expectation of, of what you're in for, but at the same time, it seems to pay off. I mean, in 2018, you had a fantastic year. Um, you made some beautiful single barrels um, from MZ. MV6 clones and the Pinot and the Chardonnay, the Hula Folk. I don't know if that's how I say it, sorry. And then you also were uh, Young Gun Winemaker's Choice as well of the year 2018. So you've had these highs and these lows. Is there any a time where you think it's all too hard and you think, you know, do we need to make it so difficult for ourselves? Could we make it a bit easier? Or is that wonderful reward of, of all that hard work when you see it pay off just worth every penny? Um. I think they're probably no. I think mostly no. The 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 um. No, I think ultimately we're doing what we love, and we love doing it. You know, it's it's um. Yes, it's hard sometimes, but uh, it it really, you know, I think sometimes it can be tough, and uh, and you know, nineteen was 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 really tough to to take, as a lot of Australian viticulturists and, and winemakers know uh, the issues with smoke and, and bushfires. And, you know, the subsequent two vintages we've had in 20 and 21 were very low yielding. I mean, our vineyard site's very low yielding anyway. I think the great yield for us is three and a half tonne to hectare. And, and you know, yeah. um, the last two vintages were two tonne to the hectare across the board. So, it's, I mean, the, those times when it's year on year on year that are, that are hard, um, you know, I think sometimes you question that, but, I, but, you know, at the same time, you then go and, and taste what's in barrel and, you know, tasting our 21s that are in barrel, it's really exciting. And, you know, we get to do this together. We get to produce something that we're really proud of together. Um, and so I, I don't think ever it feels like it's um, not something we want to do. I think we pretty quickly pivot. If we're struggling, we pretty quickly pivot to, you know, how can we make it work? Um, and I, I can't think of any other thing that we would want to do or anywhere that we would want to do this than, than here and now. Um, so, I, I, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a challenge. But as you say, we, we walked into this knowing that it was going to be difficult and kind of being excited that it was going to be difficult <laughs> because that's the, the, the challenges make the successes even more sweet. You know, it's, um, there's certainly, you know, light and shade and all of that, but that kind of makes it interesting and exciting and challenging and rewarding. So, you know, I don't think we ever get to that point where it's too much because we love it too much. Well, yeah. a glutton for punishment, but also all of those <laughs> wonderful, wonderful <laughs> rewards. And I, I completely agree with you. I don't think that without the grey shades do we get the light. And, um, I mean, I think, you know, what's been obvious to me is that when Sailor Seeks Horse came out of the docks, it was very much premium wine. I think that you have, you know, sticking to Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, sticking to the labels that you have, um, for me, the, the quality was just there straight away, which is very rare, I find, for, for a young winery um, with their first releases and second releases to just have such consistent quality, even though, yes, you've had some difficult years. But you talked a bit about Tasmania. What what have you noticed about the lifestyle of Tasmania? Say to somewhere like another wine region like Margaret River, what do you love about living in Tassie? Um, I think, uh, I mean, it's a really 
it's really relaxed and really friendly in Tassie and it's beautiful. You know, I mean, Margaret River was great fun. We loved living in Margaret River. You know, you go to the beaches and there's surfing and, you know, it's pretty um, social sort of a, a place, Margaret River. There's lots of people coming down because, you know, there's vintage crew and all that kind of stuff, people visiting and travelling and it's fun and it's a, it was a bit of a party really. We, we really, really had a great time there. And Tassie's very different. It's much quieter, um, you know, it's it's – uh, there's a lot of community support too. Not that there's not that in Margaret River, there is that. But, you know, people are starting to sort of stick together and, and get together. I mean, I, I've talked about 19 a little bit there, but um, in terms of losing our vintage. But the other really nice thing about that is that we had people reaching out and supporting us um, across the board. And whether that be like Joe Holliman, who um, sold us a little bit of Pinot uh, because not that he ever sells, you know, stuff or wouldn't otherwise sell it, but it was just to help us out. Um, same with the guys at Toll Puddle. Uh, they sold us a bit of Chardonnay to help us out. And this is last minute. And so there's people who come together and support each other. Um, the poolies who, you know, bottle our wines and, and helped us with, with paying for that. And so everybody has just been, um, yeah, it's, it's a really nice community down here. Um, and I, and I love that about Tassie and I love that, you know, we can go and do these amazing hikes in the Hearts mountains, uh, and, you know, it, it's just you, you're really close to nature and you can also get great produce and great coffee and, you know, great wine, great gin, great whatever you want. It's a, so it's a, it's a great place to live uh, and it's an interesting, there are really interesting people who, who live down here and we love it. It's a really nice community. Yeah, I, I think you can see that, um, especially when you take a visit and, and you know, whether it be sommeliers or, or winemakers or the cheesemonger, they often talk about, you know, their friends and they're, they're throwing out names here and there. And then you start to realize, oh, I know who they're talking about. They're talking about that winemaker and they're talking about that distiller. And, and you, and you realize that that's how um, interwoven the community is together in that, you know, it's one for all and all for one, but also that they generally are interacting quite a lot being that it's a smaller area and um, that they support each other, which is, which is really lovely to hear. And every time I'm, I'm in Tassie, I think, Oh, I could stay a little bit longer. So I suppose that's how it starts. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. <laughs> we get we get quite a lot of people who come down here for a couple of months and end up staying twenty years. So it's, yeah, it's, it's got that pull. <laughs> <laughs> now you um you have bottled um the one monkey, which was um in two thousand and nineteen through having a lot of losing a lot of your or all of your grapes to smoke taint. Um, and you said that that was through purchasing some wines. What's going to be what's going to happen in the next few years? Um. And I suppose for a lot of people, smoke smoke taint is something that we we hear about, but we don't actually necessarily always know how that affects the wine for down the track. Is it that one vintage that's going to affect? Will it affect the next? What happens uh, moving forward? For the smoke taint? For the smoke? Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so, I mean, oh, hopefully we don't have another year like that down here too soon. Uh, as far as that goes, um, you know, there was 2019. We actually were, in some ways, it was quite um, useful. We, there was a, a researcher at La Trobe University who had been doing a um, project to look at smoke taint and its effect on, on wines, you know, how much smoke is too much and what's, uh, what's acceptable and so on. And what he was really looking forward to get 
to finish this project was a big smoke event really close to some vineyards. Uh, so that was good timing for him. He jumped on a plane and put some monitors down here and, and did a lot of measurements uh, in terms of um, the smoke compounds in the air. We picked grapes uh, and all the different um, vineyards down here did that too, whether that's, you know, Home Hill, we did it as well up there and um, and various other places. So we got measurements of how much of those smoke compounds got into the grapes. Um, we made some wine and, um, and uh, you know, Jim Chatter made some wine and, and so on because he was affected too. Uh, we made wine through Home Hill, uh, sent some juice up to uh, Australian Wine Research Institute too, and they did trials on carbon fining because it's really all you can do with smoke-tainted fruit other than distilling it, which we ended up doing with some of the stuff. So I think we got some good um, research out of that. Uh, as far as how does it affect the vines, um, it's, a, it's a bit hard to know. I think, I mean, there's anecdotal evidence that this the year after a big smoke event, you get less yields, and we certainly did. So, I mean whether that's to do with the weather or whether that's to do with smoke exposure at that point in time is a bit hard to know. Um, uh, so it's, a, I, yeah, I, I hope that we don't have to deal with that again. I suspect we will have to deal with it at some point um, as most Australian winemakers and, and wine growers will have to at some point, unfortunately, I think. Um, and it's just something we need to, 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 to get more research about and more understanding. It's a really complex, you know, there's something like 52 smoke compounds um, that, are, that contribute to that smoke taint character. Um, and we know a little bit about the thresholds of each of those individually, but when you put it into the kind of cocktail of smoke, um, that changes that. So, you know, I think there's a lot more for us to learn. Um, as, a, as an industry, um, and there's a lot of research that is going on into that. Um, so I think we'll get a better picture. As far as us, you know, that one monkey label, we toyed with the idea of continuing that and, and doing that with other fruit and buying in some fruit, but, you know, I think that's been, we probably won't do that. I mean, our, our, our ultimate goal was to just make wine from grapes that we grew, so um, as high risk as that is, that's <laughs> we're going to say. I agree. There's so much fundamental work being done from these challenging vintages. And yes, we probably will see them again. But I, what I've loved is to see how uh, responsive Australians have been to perhaps, like you said, buying distilled liquor that comes from some of these grapes and, and looking at how they can support um, wineries throughout that time. So I think, like you said, we're going to get better at combating it in the vineyard if we can, because there's not a lot we can do, but also, um, you know, how, what we can do for, for later down the track. But at the same time, like you said, what else can, can be done? Can we buy fruit and can we make a wine from that? And will that be supported? And most of the time the answer is, is yes, because we're very proud of what, you know, what you do down there, very proud of the Australian wine scene. So I think, there's only going to, it's only going to get better um, over the years. And like you said, it's, it's all part of it at the end of the day, but my fingers and toes are crossed for the next few years that you maybe just uh, get some epic vintages and give yourself a little bit of a break. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> I was gonna, exactly. I was going to ask a little bit about the perception of Pinot Noir. And if I was say asking for somebody that drinks wine, perhaps doesn't know so much about wine, talk to me a little bit about what people can expect from Tassie Pinot Noir. They like to lump it all in a group so that you can kind of say, if you go to Tassie, this is what Pinot Noir is going to look like, which is not necessarily the case. So what would you say to people if they said, what can I expect from Tassie Pinot Noir? 
Yeah, you're right. It's hard to hard to do. It's hard to generalize that. I think you know what Tasmania has is this cool climate, and so with that comes you know a long, slow kind of a ripening process. And one, we get um, this acid that is retained, so you get freshness and drive and line. But also, I think what we see in Tassie uh, is this sort of the tannin that uh, that sort of supports that. Um, and this real intensity of fruit, and I think that's what that's what comes through. It's not necessarily, um, you know, these really fruity wines, but just the intensity that can come from that slow sort of process and, and where we are. I, I think, um, and I, and as you say, I mean, there's various styles of Pinot, and it can be different uh, wherever you go around the state, and there's different nuances around Tassie and the different wine growing areas but I think what we do get it is, is this real real core of fruit intensity and, and freshness and vibrancy from from the cool climate um, and uh, yeah nice tannin structure that's mm. what I would say as Pino. yeah well said and and what I think that you or automatically said earlier about Pinot Noir and, and your label too is that then there's these other elements of structural complexity, um, finesse, detail, savory elements, all wrapped up in that really beautiful fruit. And that's what I really see with your, with your wines is there's another layer and another layer of complexity with really long length. And, um, you know, I'm such a big fan and, you know, not because I'm paid to say so, but because I just am in general and, and your wines sell out so incredibly quickly. I don't know if that's because vintage and vine are doing such an incredible job. Uh, probably that is the case because Nick is one of the best in the business, but um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you can get your hands on some Sailor Six or Chardonnay or Pinot, you should do so and not question, um, not question it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we are, we're, we're lucky to work with great people. Um, so, you know, it's, it's nice to, to be represented by those guys. They do a great job. And, uh, and it's, 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 a, it's the final step really of the process is, is putting it in front of people. So it's nice yeah. to work with people totally. who know what you're doing. Well, I've always felt, um, you know, really invested in your story um, from the get-go. And I think uh, you're doing a fantastic job. But my last question of to you is, what, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, Gilly, what would they be and why? <laughs> These are always tough questions, aren't they? I know, um, sorry. <laughs> I, kinda, uh, yeah, I don't want to um, confine myself to just something like white burgundy, which I probably could happily drink for the rest of my life. But I think I've got to go broad and, uh, you know, I'd have to say beer definitely would be up there something like wildflower table beer you know it's nice and refreshing easy um but that's you know at the end of a, a day putting on nets or you know pressing wine or something like that you know beer, beer is sort of go-to for me to be honest um there's some good ones around tassie too even other like welcome swallow is another new beer brand that are doing pretty delicious beers so you know that that would definitely be there obviously wine but i don't even want to Generous, nice just to be generalized in that. You know, white burgundy's got to be in there, Pinot Noir's got to be in there, Nebbiolo's got to be in there. <laughs> but uh, I like variation. I'm not very decisive. So, <laughs> and, and then, you know, you got to throw in a gin as well for me, too. Yeah. It's, um, and I don't know which one I'd go for. Maybe Poltergeist or, you know, even I'm not too fussy about my gins. We've even got Fat Pig Farm down the road who'd 
do their own stuff and uh, they like wine swaps, so that's always handy. <laughs> so I don't know, Shante, I'd have to keep it general and just, you know, so I can pick and choose day by day. Yeah, and it covers all your bases. And at the end of the day, you're right. It depends on the day, depends on what you've just been through, depends on the company you keep. So I, I realise it is a very difficult question, but it does tell me a little bit more about you. And the next time we meet, I might have an arsenal of what I'm going <laughs> to give you to drink. So that helps. <laughs> Never the same thing. <laughs> well, Gilly, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for making the time. Please send uh, our love to Paul and keep doing what you're doing down there because it's truly sensational. Thank you for joining me and uh, cheers to you. Thanks, Shante. It's been great. Look forward to seeing you sometime soon, hopefully. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.